Hey, queens and kings. It is so good to be back for season two of These Three Things. You are listening to episode one of season two, and I'm having some queen conversation today with the brilliant Tamika Newman, and we're talking about her book, Grateful and Greedy, Challenging and Redefining What It Means to Win in Life. When I read Tamika's book, I knew I had to talk to this queen. One of the things that instantly drew me to this book and my love for it was the fact that Tamika has had so many black women pour into her over her life. She talks about her grandmother and the relationship that she has with her grandmother and how her grandmother played a major role in helping her become the woman that she is just through the support and the encouragement and the discipline that she received from her grandmother, from women in her church to coaches that she had, from teachers that she had. So many black women poured into this queen. I love the fact that these women were in her life because it speaks volumes to what I'm hoping that we learn here as we listen to these three things podcast is that we are better together. And when you read this book, and I encourage everyone to go and purchase this book, it is on Amazon and Tamika will tell you more about how you can get a signed copy in this episode. But when you read this book, you will see that when we encourage and we discipline and we love and we redirect and we speak life into, and we impart, and we support other sisters, how much stronger it makes us as women. Our relationships matter, and I am so honored to feature Tamika as the launch episode for season two, her book, Grateful and Greedy. I'll have more to share with you at the end of the episode of some bonus things that Tamika and I are going to be doing So this is Sharana Reeves. You are listening to these three things. I'm having queen conversation with Tamika Newman, author of Grateful and Greedy. Enjoy. Too close, free your mind, let's go, these three things. 
Tamika Newman, believer, mother, coach, author, speaker, advocate. She is from Houston, Texas. She is the owner of Grit and Grind Athletics, an athletics service provider. Tamika holds her bachelor's in communications from Prairie View A&M and her MBA from Texas Southern. She is the author of Grateful and Greedy, challenging and redefining what it means to win in life. And she is here talking to me about her book. Tamika, welcome to These Three Things. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you here. So first of all, let me just, okay. If you're a listener of these three things, you know, I always like to talk about how I know people that I know. So I'm going to let you tell the story about how we ended up connecting. Awesome. So I, I believe, um, initially I follow Tina Thompson on Instagram. Okay. Uh, My girl T shout out to T. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I saw her. Uh, maybe take she took a picture in her th- these three things shirt and talked about um, recording you know doing a podcast with you and I have a good friend Wesley Brooks yes shout out to Wes <laughs> assistant basketball co- women's basketball coach at University of Michigan mm-hmm. and um, I talked to him a lot about uh, the book and some of the promo and hey I want to start pitching myself to podcasts and uh, I was like hey I made a list of 30 that I think you know my <laughs> yeah. topics um, would definitely be able to go on to. Mm-hmm. And I, I name a few and I name your podcast. Yeah. I know her. Yeah. I see her on a recruiting trail. Yeah. And um, like, uh, he's just like, oh, make sure, you know, you let her know that, that you know me. Um, and I didn't right away. I went and listened to the Tina Thompson episode mm-hmm. and um, was really impressed with the conversation and, Hadn't heard any other podcast talking about those things specifically. Yeah. And for women in sports. Yeah. And just reached out. And I think you responded at like five in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> Neither do I. I think I sent it at 11. Yeah. <laughs> like six hours later. Yeah. You guys, Grateful and Greedy is just so good. And I have so many questions for Tamika. And, you know, I try so hard to keep my episodes within an hour. But when something's good, like, I can't not ask all the questions that I just have to know. And it's just so much, so much good stuff. If you can see my book, I have, like, highlighted in so many different colors. I've, like, marked certain things that I just thought was just so profound. I had to, like... Just acknowledge, just take a second. There were moments in your book, Tamika. I had to just take a second and just sit there for a second. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had to just sit there for a second and just like, that's so real. That is so real. And, you know, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 35. Just such wisdom, just such wisdom. And I want to start it off because everybody knows that These Three Things is a podcast for women of color. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me the most about your book was the dynamic relationships that you've had with black women your whole life and how you acknowledged all of them at the end of the book about the role that they played for you and like how much of that like obviously shaped you and did you always realize as you were growing up 
that the Lord just consistently placed so many necessary women in your life at a time when your mom wasn't able to be what you needed her to be. Talk about that. Very aware that I was, I think I I was blessed in that way. Mm -hmm. I I think I realized that and it helped me to not be angry at my mom that, that God had allowed those women to come into my life. Um, And it took my mind off, you know, not having a mom. They filled the gaps so well. Grateful and Greedy, Challenging and Redefining What It Means to Win in Life is the name of your book. What was your definition of winning in life before you redefined it for yourself? Uh, Working hard, making sacrifices, um, being the first to do stuff. Uh, Achievement was a big part of what what I defined as winning, just achieving and achieving more and achieving more. Um, and, and it became super addictive. And then by chance, I became a coach and winning is, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the measure which I we're judged by. Absolutely. And I became obsessed with winning. Um, <laughs> so just, yeah, just working tirelessly, sacrificing, enduring and achieving was winning for me. Um, before I started to redefine it. Yeah. And now that you've redefined it, what is it for you? It is. Um, beating odds. It's uh, getting better every day. It's work-life balance is winning, Mm -hmm. (laughs) maintaining that. Um, Focusing on being different and not better so much. Um, Doing things your own way. Um, You know, setting your own rules or defining your own rules. So we're going to just jump into this and get started. We are in Houston, Texas today in my hotel. Tamika and I met at my hotel and they were gracious enough to give me a spot for free. Shout out to Marriott. We're going to let's just, you know, walk through the journey of this book. Just for uh, my listeners, share your background and where you're from and your family dynamics and your upbringing that we just talked about a little earlier. All right. So um, the hotel we're in is a rock's throw from everywhere we lived throughout my childhood, we would move every three or four years, but generally on wow. the on this side of town, mm-hmm. always within uh, earshot of the airplanes. Um, one of five kids born to my mother, mm-hmm. and very early, three, four, and five years old for me and the uh, for the last three of my siblings, uh, we went to live with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was struggling with drug use, and uh, we just thought. My grand, grandmother thought it would be better that we come, came to live with her, mm-hmm. her and Child Protective Services. Okay. <laughs> and my mom being uh, just feeling hopeless, really didn't fight it. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew she just needed to get her life together. So we moved into a packed house. Okay. <laughs> Our younger aunts and uncles hadn't left home yet. Um, I think the last few were in high school or kind of back from college. And then some of my older aunts and uncles, their kids would live there on and off. I went to school and church. Mm-hmm. School and church. <laughs> school and church. Uh, my grandmother ran our home uh, like she was a uh, sergeant mm-hmm. in the army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all day cleaning up on Saturdays and then all day church on Sundays. Uh, my grand- my grandmother's from Houston, uh, Third Ward, historic Third Ward area here. Grandfather from Louisiana. Okay. Um, Grandfather only had an eighth grade education, but was a huge education advocate, really a no excuse household. Mm -hmm. Um, And about 12 years old, I got super interested in sports, sports. um, which is the same year the WNBA was formed. Mm. Um, 
and uh, start playing sports, following my brothers to the basketball court, playing sports, eventually fell in love with volleyball. And then uh, I, outside of church and cleaning up at home, just kind of became a sports fanatic. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, your family just, they supported you in, in going into sports and they were, they were cool with that. No, no. So <laughs> sixth grade, uh, the same year I discovered the WNBA mm-hmm. and my love for it. We participated in kind of a church basketball tournament. Mm-hmm. My grandmother goes up to pay the registration for my two brothers. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you, you owe for three people. Tamika's playing. <laughs> she's like, no, she's not. Uh, kind of embarrassed, pays it anyway, really mm-hmm. chews me out. Um, just no one had really played sports. I had a cousin that did it for a little bit, mm-hmm. but not really. She wasn't okay with it. I think I wore a skirt or dress to school till I was eight or nine. Yeah. So uh, especially so basketball, she just thought it was too boyish. Yeah. Uh, and so reluctantly, she paid. And once I started taking it serious and she saw how much I loved it, she supported it. And that's kind of how she was my yeah. whole life with with things that I chose to do, uh, my actual drive and determination to do it and consistency will, will usually make her fall in love yeah, with it. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about your siblings for a second, because you said you grew up in like a packed house. It was a lot of people living in the house. And, and you say this early and grateful and greedy that they had given into the idea that somehow I received more, but in reality, I always wanted more. Where do you think your want for better came from a and was it more from seeing what you saw outside of your home or from inside? I would say it was from reading books, oh. which my grandmother encouraged because I would complain of boredom. Yeah. And it was no such thing as being bored mm. in our house. It's like, do you want something to clean up? Yeah. <laughs> I could find something no, for you thank to do. You. Yeah. <laughs> and she say, go read a book. And... Mm. When I read books, it opened up this whole world. Um, so I was grateful enough to know that in our neighborhood, we we were doing okay. Mm-hmm. But reading books really made me greedy, which yeah. is what I, you know, you know, I define as wanting more. Yes. Books really made me greedy. It was like, whoa, this, this there's a lot of things, you know, the possibilities are endless for what I can become, what I can do. Yeah. Uh, so I would say reading. Reading. And, and then my grandmother, um, I realized very early, and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. She had a different standard for me. Mm. <laughs> so maybe maybe she saw something yeah. that I didn't, but she really had even with my within my sibling circle. So yeah. definitely, um, she saw something in me. I, I I wrote down this question. I, I put that you know it's obvious that not disappointing her was very important to you. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, up until even now in in her passing, it is like a thing when I get up in the morning. Yeah. Talk about the dynamics of your relationship with your grandmother. And what is her name? Uh, My grandmother's Connie. Connie Connie. White. Connie White. Miss Connie. Um, Very early on, we were really close, mostly because I was kind of hanging under her and really intrigued by her putting on her lipstick, her perfume, getting dressed for church and work and cooking and, and all the things that, you know, she did daily. Um, I, I just kind of tag along and follow along, you know, follow behind her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and she just it was like I said it, the house was so full um I started to achieve stuff you know this certificate that certificate and I, and I think that initially got me a little more attention mm-hmm. than most it's like hey I and in her she was very unhappy you know in her marriage and it it kind of gave her a little hope or yeah. it kind of was a, a bright light in kind of a seemingly dark you know situation yeah um and I remember being embarrassed that she would make such a big deal out of really small achievements the reading award the, yeah and I realized that it was helping her really get through me achieving mm. um she was feeling accomplished in ways that she hadn't with with her own kids and the circumstances were different she was yeah. you know she was a single parent for a lot, you know, a lot, a young parent and as you know, a single parent, a good chunk of, of their life. Yeah. So it looked a little different. Their life looked a little different. Um, did you take that on as, did you take in, did you ever take any of that on to make it like, I can't let granny down. Like, you know, I'm, I'm the hope for her. Did you see that at a young age? Yes, I did. Okay. I did. Um, and then, as I started to achieve it, it, our house, our family had a little tension because of that. Mm -hmm. It caused a little bit of a divide and, and she didn't know what, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I, she still wanted to push me. Yeah. You know, I understand what y'all are saying. And I felt bad for her and that because they then started to act out a little bit and, you know, have an attitude. and I was like, well, I really got to do this because she kind of stuck her neck out. Mm-hmm. Her, her her kids are a little upset yeah. with her and me. Yeah. And I can't fail. And I, I, I really took that on, you know, when I went to college. And it was like my grandmother stuck her neck out for mm-hmm. me and, and risked having tension with her kids. Yeah. Because, she, you know, of of the attention um, that she gave me. So basketball was your first love, not volleyball. Yes, I'm a basketball kid. You had a, a really good uh, career in basketball and volleyball in high school. So Tamika decides she's going to go to college and play both. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, God bless you. Like, <laughs> you are a superwoman because who does that? You p- you pick Prairie View A&M yes. to go to college. What was your major? Communications. Communications. I'm yeah. a communications major, too. Yeah, I was going to be the next Pam Oliver. Yeah. I can see that. I can totally see that. I can totally see that. When did it dawn on you in the process of all this? Because I think you played both sports your freshman year, correct? Yeah, yeah the first two years. Okay. Both. So at what point in that time did it dawn on you that I'm not going to be able to do these two sports? It didn't that year. The very next year, mm-hmm. it did. When you do decide to walk away, which I thought was very interesting, um, when you guys read the book, you're going to find that Tamika was coached by Hall of Famer Cynthia Cooper. So then you have to walk into the office and tell the legendary Cynthia Cooper that you are going to quit the basketball team. What was that like? Oh, my God. I was terrified. Were you really? Yeah, because her response is Coop. She's not going to take a second to think and be thoughtful with this response. Yeah. You know, she's going to fire back with something pretty real and raw yeah (laughs) and was her response what you thought it would be she didn't fire back with anything raw she she showed a little concern initially but she's old school Mm -hmm. when you tell old school coach you're gonna quit they're not gonna talk you in the stand right that does that's just not what they do right um 
either way, I quit. And the very next year, you know, we win the conference in volleyball. Yeah. And, you know, I had an amazing year. So, yeah, I you think did. <laughs> you had an amazing career. Player of the year. OK, so let me ask you a question. And I've always wanted to ask um, a player who's played at HBCU this. When you guys would play against predominantly white institutions, did you ever feel like the black kids on those programs looked down on y'all? Absolutely. Yeah, we did. But what we also noticed was you could tell they felt out of place. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because I want to stop on that for just a second because, you know, coming from a PWI, predominantly white institution, uh, for those of you who don't know that acronym, but um, it always bothered me that whenever we would play uh, HBCU, the language and the jargon that my white coaches would use. It was almost like subconsciously telling us black girls who played at the PWI that our institutions were less than. It was kind of like, yeah, we're, you know, like shouldn't be no reason why we don't go out here. And if these kids can do this. And I used to think to myself, do they not realize that they're talking about us? I would always say to people, well, before I could attend the University of Alabama, these were the schools that we were only allowed to go to. Absolutely. So how am I going to act like I'm something better than when a lot of my ancestors were educated through HBCUs and then having worked at Alabama State in compliance? Let me just tell you, being on an HBCU campus and just watching us in our glory every day was just like, I was so happy to go to work every it's magical. day. It's magical. Like, just how in the middle of the quad, the band will just get crunk. The whole school will just take off. And just, we're just enjoying life. Oh, yeah. And in our element. I'm with Tamika Newman. This is These Three Things. And we are talking about being grateful and greedy. And we'll be right back. Are you looking for help building a website? Do you have a website that just doesn't reflect your personality and brand? Then you need to contact Brady Mills. Website design, e-commerce, and online marketing are a breeze with Brady. When these three things website lacked the personality that I needed, Brady took over my website, listened to my vision, and now my site reflects my personality and brand perfectly. Not only has he helped me, he's helped companies across the globe grow their online brand. Learn more or schedule your free consultation at BradyMills.com. That's B-R-A-D-Y-M-I-L-L-S.com. Hey, this is Sharana Reeves, and I am here with Tamika Newman, author of Grateful and Greedy, Challenging and Redefining What It Means to Win in Life. Let's talk about GLOW. Uh, we all have a glow. We all have a glow. That guy that you see on campus, your freshman or sophomore year, whatever it is, whatever year that you see it, see him, and he is just the guy. How did you and Glow meet? Formally, we met in the library. Okay. Uh, but I had been seeing him in the the calf. Okay. The student center uh, we ate uh, where we ate all our meals. He'd be sitting with his football teammates, and I'd be sitting with my volleyball teammates. Um, but he actually walked up to me in a late study session in the library mm -hmm. and introduced himself and said, "Hey, you cute." <laughs> <laughs> and that was basically when I first saw him in the 
the Catholic student cafeteria. He's very dark skinned, mm-hmm. very, very handsome, you know, in shape, really white teeth. Yes. Um, and he, he used to wear this lotion that's like super thick, super shiny. He still probably wears it to this day. And so he just always look oily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I see him, that's kind of the essence he gave off a glow. Yeah. And so s- instead of saying his name, the few girls I shared my crush with, mm-hmm. we just say, there go glow, there go glow, there go glow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, in amazement. He, he physically, he he was. I was very attracted to him. Mm-hmm. Was he your first love? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. How did you know he was being unfaithful? Because you 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 talked about that in the book about how you know you knew that kind of throughout the relationship he wasn't. Was it because he was a football player and he was good looking and that just what it is what it was? It, it, yeah, I talk a little bit in the book about the women to men ratio at. HBCUs and college periods, like seven to one. Right. I think the first time uh, someone got word to me while we were on road trips that he was like taking a girl to class. And I was like, what? (laughs) Totally crushed. So that was the first time. And then throughout the four years we were in college, it was, you know, every now and then it was kind of something. And I think, again, I didn't know how to quit something. Yeah, yeah. And he was the first thing that was just mine. You know, coming from a house with so many people, we shared everything. Yeah. And the relationship, um, it just seemed like it was something that was my own. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't ready to, you know, give that up. You know, he's the first man to pay me some real significant attention. I loved your vulnerability talking about him. I want to read something from the book. And I want to read something that I just thought was... (sighs) Just one of those moments in the book I had to just set it down again and just be like, wow. Okay, so this is after your grandfather has passed away and you're talking about your grandmother and what you realize in this moment. You said maybe she was tired from living the lies she had told herself for all those years, that there was some reward waiting for her after sacrificing her happiness all those years. I didn't know it then, but I admired her resilience I thought there was something to be said about that, even though I didn't agree with it. Whether I liked it or not, a precedence was being set for me in my life by the person I looked up to the most. Resilience was more important than personal happiness. So growing up, watching your grandmother, because you mentioned earlier that she wasn't in a happy marriage, and you knew that, but you grew up watching the resilience in her stick-to-itiveness to stay in that relationship with him. Absolutely. And you saw that in your relationship with Glow, even though you knew sometimes he wasn't the best thing for you. You stuck with him. Absolutely. What I saw was he was from middle class. I was from working to lower class. It looked like, you know, this would be a stable situation. You know, I had no doubt that it would upgrade my life if he and I had a future together, even though I had, you know, all the faith in the world that I was going to upgrade my own life by, yeah. by getting an education. And a part of me, even though I was super independent, was like, you, you know, you definitely want to marry up or marry into something stable. I had come from such dysfunction that I was willing to just to have a functional family. I was willing to overlook a few yeah. little indiscrep- you know, discrepancies about him. Okay, so I thought about what you wrote, uh, which was another area in the book that you that you highlighted. Is that you wrote how often we are taught as women that 
Resilience is more important than personal happiness. And I thought, how often, especially, and I, it, you know, it could be every community, but, you know, these three things is a podcast for women of color. Uh, everyone is welcome. I always like to say that. But how often are we taught that thing? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's embedded in you. It, no one talks about or asks you, is this making you happy? It, any, it, I kind of grew up thinking anything that's good is going to be hard. If yeah. it if it if it's not hard, then that's not where it's at. Like yeah. That's <laughs> so um, I didn't I didn't think you could accomplish anything or anything could be successful or have lasting power if it wasn't extremely hard. <laughs> but do you feel? Because I have parents who have been married fifty two years. Do you feel that resilience does have its place to a point, though? I do. I, it it does have its place, and I think it where it goes wrong is when you don't um, understand or know when something isn't serving you well. Like, Mm -hmm. I think resiliency is why I'm here today. It's the reason for um, anything I've accomplished is because of my resiliency. And um, I just think that sometimes resiliency looks like you pivoting towards something that gives you greater purpose. And some people might put the word quitting there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I think if we're in alignment with what we, with our purpose and who we are, what looks like quitting to somebody looks to you like you're being resilient. Yeah. You know, you're, you're just going towards something that serves you. And, and every everybody won't know what serves you. You only you know. Yeah. Real talk. <laughs> Sometimes resiliency, you're, you being resilient is causing your health fail yeah it's killing you but you still sticking in it (laughs) yeah um, I love how you tied winning because you talked about at one point between you and glow how on the outside it looked like we were winning but then the realization that this relationship is no longer serving me like you had to redefine absolutely what winning looked like in your relationship with this man oh absolutely I, I knew that it looked like winning because of who we were and who, you know, we were we were popular. The relationship became this cool thing. You know, yeah. she plays volleyball, he plays football. It was kind of the football and volleyball version of love and basketball yeah. on campus. And people admired it, aspired to, yeah. to have that. I love the fact that you were just always smart enough to know at the right time when to walk away. Because sometimes women, we don't get that. Even though you love to win. You tried to hang on to what winning even looked like in this in this particular relationship. You were smart enough to realize at some point, like, okay, this ain't winning, girl. You're not winning. It's time to walk away. And I love that about you, your ability to be to pivot. Thank you. I, I receive that. Uh, I oftentimes beat myself up because when I reflect on things that I, I wish I would have left sooner. Yeah. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I need to forgive myself and just be grateful that I did you know, decide yes. to, to leave and to walk away from different, you know, situations and people. Okay, so I have some quotes that I loved <laughs> that I want to talk about for a minute. Okay, so one quote that I love that you put was resiliency sometimes looks like pivoting from your original goal to pursue one that gives you a greater sense of purpose. 
And I thought, well, there is just my life in one whole sentence right there. Oh, man. Yeah. When I read your um, bio and heard your first few episodes, uh, I could see that we we were similar in that way. Yeah. On the the topic of of that, when I decided to write about my struggles as a black volleyball coach, um, so many black women who read it that were coaches were calling me like almost in tears because what happens if we don't talk about it, um, you really feel like maybe you're making it up or you're imagining it. It's not real. Yeah. Or it's just me. It's just me. Yep. And no one got it. Even black men that I would work with who would see it. I could sense their look like it's just, it's you. Yep. You know, and then after being in three programs, it's like, no, it's not. Yeah. And then after now starting these conversations with other black women coaches that coach predominantly white sports, they're like, no, this is going on. Like nobody believes me or I don't even have the courage to tell anybody because people are like you're overreacting, yeah. you're sensitive. So I'm. It, it's so important to um, talk about being a black woman in sports. Yes. And and when I when I saw that you left sports um and, and read your bio and knew you were very capable, I'm sure. You know, I saw where you had been. I, I nobody had to tell me you weren't capable and had the ability to 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 coach at whatever level. I knew that some of the same things I experienced, you had experienced. Yeah. You don't you don't have to tell me. Yep. <laughs> you know, and writing it made it so real for me. When you decided to coach volleyball and in the job interview process, you were experiencing, you know, the attitude of what a lot of black coaches and leadership experience. Did you feel that what you were experiencing when you were going through the interview process of how early on people were calling you back and saying, well, yeah, we don't have this role for you, but you can do this one. A, I love the fact that you were like, uh, no, thank you. I'm looking to do this and just walk away. I was like, you know what? <laughs> this girl. <laughs> because I was like, man, I love that, Tamika, because how many of us have went ahead and did something that we really didn't want to do because it was the opportunity that was presented to us? How much of what you were getting in the interview process when you were uh, going after a head coaching jobs? Did you get from like the feedback? They didn't see you as a leader because you had come from the HBCU or they questioned whether you were a qualified leader because you came from an HBCU or because you were black both. or both, 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 both. Yeah, both. And um, definitely because I was black is just no one else. No one wanted to be the first to have a black volleyball coach and have, you know, no one wanted to answer to parents and donors. And then definitely HBCU. Because uh, I I do camps all over the country with girls from Texas and LSU. And, oh, yeah, they get a little bit more respect. Absolutely. Um, And they know it. We talk about it. Yeah. So it was definitely it was definitely both. But my attending an HBCU helped me and it hurt me for four years. I, I didn't think about race. Yeah, I didn't. I was in just it was. I'm here and I'm pursuing excellence and I am just as good as anybody else. And so I was very naive. I had not, it had not dawned on me. I I knew it was predominantly white. Mm -hmm. I didn't pay attention to that. It was coached by predominantly, you know, white coaches. And, but my having gone to an HBCU 
and the confidence that was instilled in me mm-hmm. was why the first three people that called me back and said, hey, we really like you, but we don't want you to coach volleyball. Can you coach basketball and track? You'd be a great, great role model for our girls. Yeah. It, that's the reason I could say no, because that standard of excellence mm-hmm. was embedded in me. So um, it helped me and it, and it hurt me. Yeah. Um, so were you shocked when you began coaching how much off the court issues you had to deal with? I was, and probably because I came from a black and brown school, low, um, you know, Title I school district. Yep. The parent involvement is low, so the issues are a little bit different. Mm-hmm. You know, couldn't really raise money we needed to do, so we lacked in resources. But our parents weren't, you know, overbearing. They didn't cross any lines. Every yeah. now and then you'd have a, a parent um, getting a little unruly about playing time. And even then they were embarrassed because it just wasn't a thing to openly just kind of act crazy with the coach. But I had no idea <laughs> at all. I was completely blindsided by that. Yeah. Uh, how did you deal with all of that and not just be pissed off? I worked harder and mm. I, I almost worked myself to death, literally. Yeah. I joked that I would. I was like, I'll be shocked if I don't have a stroke before 30. I said that and laughed like it was funny. Yeah. As I started to develop anxiety, mm. you know, before I opened the email or when I got in the parking lot, I started to develop this sweaty palm, shaky voice, tears, mm-hmm. involuntary tears just rolling. I thought that it was just the way it was supposed to be. This is This is sports now. This is how parents are. And so I just, I kept trying to reach for more. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could tell y'all don't think I'm smart enough. Mm-hmm. Thousands of dollars on professional development. Thousands. Y'all think that club coaches know more than high school. I coach club. So I went straight from volleyball school season to coaching club all from November well into May. Yeah, I wound up coaching volleyball every year, nine months out of the year, the entire summer college camps or local camps. Yeah. So I put in more hours and professional development into myself, pretty much running myself in the ground for like five straight years. Um, uh, so that, that, that was my thing. If you don't think I'm good enough, I'll work harder than everybody else. And I was way harder than my peers. Did they see your efforts? So there, there were there were kids who did, and surprisingly, it wasn't just black kids. There, there were white kids that, when they graduated, and I would see them after, or we'd be friends on social media, and and they would thank me, mm-hmm. um, and they would, or or kids when I would leave one school and they'd get a new coach, they could see the difference then in the work ethic mm-hmm. and the organization and the standard. Mm-hmm. They were begging to have the standard back. Yeah. But the resistance definitely made me feel like you, you're not supposed to be doing it. And that was a hard thing to accept mm-hmm. that I had worked hard enough and gained enough knowledge to be pretty skilled mm-hmm. at this. And something, t- some, this, it's rejecting me. <laughs> like, how does that work? Yeah. Like, what, you yeah. know, what will I do with this knowledge or information? If this is over for me, God. I'm just feeling like a high level coach. I'm feeling like, you know, a professional coach, you know, what can I do with 
this knowledge and um, plain as day came to me that do what you originally were going to do. And I went into coaching because I, I coached at a little charter school while I was in grad school mm-hmm. and I took a kid home and it's not far from where we are here. And I could tell that there was no lights. Everybody was on the porch. It was pitch black in the house and I could see someone dumping a bucket. So I knew the water was off. It, I mean, this was a bad situation. Yeah. And I drove home and I was like, you know, I was enjoying coaching a little bit. Mm-hmm. Grad school was ending. Teaching and coaching was a pretty decent salary here in Texas for high school. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to go be a coach um, because of what a coach was for me. Yep. And my life, home life wasn't nearly as bad. And I started winning. And I didn't feel like I was making the impact I wanted to. But winning kept me there. Yeah. And that that's why I talk about redefining winning yeah. because I cared about winning. And <clears throat> because how my life started out, I'm not supposed to win. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. the, the, everything about my life says you'll be a loser. So when I got into coaching and, and started coaching at those affluent schools, you know, it didn't serve me well because I really went away from my original mission. Yeah. Right. So when I thought about giving it up, I said, I'm done coaching volleyball to kids of affluency, which generally is white kids. Let's be real. Yeah. Like I'm going to create my own business and I'm going to only cater to low income kids. Yeah. I was, that was bitter. I was mad at folk with money. I'm just happy to hear you say you was mad. (laughs) Cause I mean, throughout the whole book, I'm like, she is taking this like a champ. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, I decided to um, commit my business, which is Grit and Grind Athletics, mm-hmm. to low-income areas. So, And uh, talk about Grit and Grind, please. So, yeah, I created it March 2019 from that idea mm-hmm. that I want to still coach. And at this point, I was done with coaching. I still coached club, um, but I was like, I'm done with high school. Yeah. Formed that, pitched myself to low-income schools, mm-hmm. my high school, which is down the street. It's a rock's throw from here. And schools of similar demographics, mm-hmm. and they were excited. They were thrilled. Like somebody pitched something that we know is going to be quality yeah. because we we know you. Yep. Um, we know you know what what's what we what we're up against, and it, it was huge. I mean, you know, more people signed up for it than I had the staff to work it. I was wow. I was blown away. I want to talk about this for just a second because what I got into coaching to do and what coaching was for me for uh, the lady who coached me at the University of Alabama who, who recruited me Dottie Kelso uh, she passed away my senior year of a brain aneurysm at 31 years old she just gotten engaged to be married uh, she was everything to all of us on that team we loved Dottie Kelso and she passed away the year that we ended up playing in the final four to my younger coach Johnny Jones who was a white man I grew up in the 70s who was tough as hell on me, but I knew he loved me. And he was the first white person that ever coached me that I could remember that it wasn't no difference. These white kids gonna get it just like these black kids. Mm. Everybody here is equal. And uh, his family gave me an opportunity to speak at his funeral. He died, uh, now it's been three years since Coach Jones died. But um, what I saw as an assistant coach after years was that as a black woman, I could not be what I knew those girls that looked like me were going to need once they graduated because the discipline factor that a lot of us needed 
we were not getting. And because I'm built up the way I'm built up, my way of expressing that love to these girls was trying to hold them accountable. But I understood as an assistant and not being a leader, I could only do so much. Absolutely. And you're seen as bad cop. I, I have a theory. I have a a gripe about bad cop, good cop. Yeah. Um, uh, so first of all, the, the things you stated, th- that was my way of coaching. That was my philosophy. That was... I, I was passionate about setting expectations for kids that would help them in the future. Yes. And my administrators, other women on my staff, which mostly would be white women, um, they they were not, it was not a concern for them to hold the line and to set expectations and hold kids accountable. And that created a good cop, bad cop scenario. Yeah. And so um, when I got on in coaching and and really understood my philosophy and came into my own, I tell my assistants, I don't do bad cop, good cop. I say, we all hold the line. We all hold the line. And what people, what it does is it's a feel good moment for a coach that Mm -hmm. they're the favorite one. Uh, The kids like me. It's a a feel good thing. And I always tell them, you know, I don't need 15 year old friends. And so it's a feel-good thing, and they think they're doing them a favor. Oh, they've got someone to talk to. They've got an outlet. And I'm, I try to get people to see long-term you're not helping them. And I know you think you are. And, and so I, I am very clear with that. When I hire people, I'm like, no, 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 no. Because I know I'm going to come off stern. I know you're going to think that. And yeah. I don't need you to try to fall into this friend role with yeah. them. Um, and and it's tough when the parents don't see that you're really on their side. You're yeah. an ally, and I'm I'm trying to be what we promised you we would be for your kid. That that's the one thing that has brought me to tears to sit across from a black parent who, uh, instead of um, appreciating the standard, um, really going against me and you know coming after my job and my character to a white administrator sitting there who I know could care less about your kid beyond what they can do for the school. Athletically. Very hurtful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is. Okay. So we're at last questions. Who did you make this book for? I made it for people um, who are stuck in careers that don't, that aren't making them happy, um, relationships that aren't fulfilling. Um, for people who are, you know, undervalued, for people who are tired of living life based on, you know, everybody else's standard. I made it for, you know, I thought about black women a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew it it would help affirm some of their struggles and hopefully encourage them to uh, move past them. And I made it for kids who are growing up in situations similar to mine, who uh, need something to strive for. Everybody uh, can, can take a moment to stop and reflect on all the things I'm chasing or pursuing. Do I really want these things? 
did I really decide or make a decision to chase this or did something else urge me to or did something else force me to? Mm -hmm. So really everybody can stop and my belief system, how I'm raising my kids is that because I agree with this stuff, I think this is the way or because this is what society says I should be doing. In your words, what does it mean to be grateful and greedy? So my my thing is I think people that are really, really grateful are so grateful that sometimes we, so most people that are really, really grateful are big on having impact, giving back to others, affecting others, impacting others. So, um, but I think that just being grateful sometimes um, causes you to, you know, uh, stay and be stagnant. Yeah. Um, you don't, like I say, you don't see blind spots. Um, I think that I combine the two because you definitely need to be thankful for where you are, but you need to constantly be pursuing more. And I, and I, I to add to that, you pursuing more and being passionate about your own stuff is more impactful than anything. And it's super contagious. So um, that that's what I'm committing my life to is that, uh, you know, I'm going to still be grateful. That was instilled in me. It got me this far. It's helped me through challenges to be grateful. But um, I did. I wasn't making the impact I wanted just staying at grateful. I needed to elevate to yeah. greedy. Grateful is great for you because it helps you. Like I said, it, it you know, being grateful helped me out of a low-income situation. Mm -hmm. Because I was so grateful, I worked hard, I appreciated everything, and, but that helped me. But I think to help others, you gotta be greedy. Yeah, which is quite the opposite of what we believe greedy mm -hmm. to be. We mm -hmm. think greedy is all about self. Yes, but I think you need to pause and be about self for a little bit. Yeah, and that 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 action that that mind shift is super contagious to other people. And yeah. I've seen it since the book has been out. Yeah, my, my friends will joke. Grateful and greedy, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. Um, so it, it's uh, it's just kind of a declaration yeah. that I can be both, you can be both. And it's okay. We, yeah, we don't have to accept the standard definition mm -hmm. of greedy. Is challenging and redefining what it means to win in life always changing and evolving as we live? Yes, it's fluid. Yeah. <laughs> it is fluid and it, it it changes at every stage of your life. And even my own story, you know, even if I'm not um, doing something that comes with the prestige of being a high level coach with a lot of wins, mm -hmm. whatever I do, you know, as long as it aligns with who I want to be and it's impacting others, I'm winning. Yeah. So Tamika, please tell the listeners of these three things, how they can get a copy of Grateful and Greedy. Awesome. So it is on Amazon, um, the ebook in the hardback, uh, the hard copy. But if you want an autographed copy, uh, my website, TamikaNewman.com. Tamika, <laughs> this has been a joy. Oh, mine too. Thank you I, for I this. To end. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thank you for this experience, really. Thank you. You have written an amazing book how wonderfully brilliant you are thank you so much thank you for being here and that is it you guys we'll be right back with these three things hey queens kings and friends thank you so much for listening to these three things podcast i know you guys are listening 
But are y'all out here following and subscribing? You can find me on YouTube and Instagram at These Three Things Podcast and on Facebook at These Three Things P. And whatever platform you're listening to this podcast episode on, go and leave a review today and let me know what you loved about this episode. Hey, Queens, we're back. This is Sharana Reeves. I am with Tamika Newman. And it's time for these three things. Number one, the village. We are all familiar with the old saying, it takes a village. My guest, author Tamika Newman says that the village of women in her life filled in the gaps during those times of dysfunction in her youth. Queens, do we still have a village? Are we as black women doing our part to make sure that those who come behind us gaps are filled? Our ancestors had a village. Many of us grew up with a village. Somewhere along the way, we lost trust in each other, and our village has suffered because of it. Having a network of support is priceless. It teaches us the value in supporting each other. It gives us confidence to know we're not alone. I want you to think of two young adults that you know right now who are not in your household who could benefit from you playing a supportive role in their village. And Queen, support them, encourage them, check on them, and guide them in love. You know, maybe we can't recreate the old village but we can certainly create a new one. I guarantee you, it'll make a difference. Ready, set, go. Number two, are you still winning? In Grateful and Greedy, Tamika talked about how she had gotten away from her original plan to coach low-income athletes and be to them what her coaches and mentors were to her. Forgetting the original plan can happen subtly. When we listen too much to outside voices and expectations and suggestions, we can easily begin to believe that we're winning with the money, the title, the material thing, the man. And there's nothing wrong with going after what you want. After all, Tamika told us it's okay to be greedy. But every once in a while, take a step back and ask yourself, am I still winning? And wait for your soul to answer. If you've gotten off course, return to the original one or redefine a new one. Your idea of winning may change over time. And quite possibly, it should. Number three. Look at you. Look at you getting up early every morning, fighting that heavy spirit that says, no, just stay in bed. Look at you 
continuing to get that workout in even though you didn't feel like it. Look at you being a better colleague at work because you've realized the sister down the hall is not your enemy. She's actually cool as hell. Look at you going to therapy, unpacking all those bags and walking in clarity. Look at you letting go of that toxic relationship that hasn't served you in years. Look at you getting off the medication because you've been taking care of yourself and eating right. And look at you praying and seeking his kingdom first and letting him add everything else. Look at you looking like a queen. And that's it for episode one of season two, These Three Things. This is Sharana Reeves. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to catch Tamika and I on Instagram live this Wednesday, tomorrow, as we talk more about this episode, her thoughts after listening to her episode, and we'll be answering your questions. You can follow and listen by going to These Three Things podcast on Instagram.